culture, it is the driving force. There's nothing more important because culture allows you to hire people. People build products. Products bring you customers. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was David Vélez, founder and CEO of Nubank. David visited the Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of the View from the Top series, a speaker series where students, just like myself, sit down and interview business leaders from around the world. David's visit also coincided with the 10-year anniversary of his graduation from the GSB. I'm Christopher Stromeyer, an MBA student in the class of 2022. David recounted his entrepreneurial journey that began after graduating from the GSB just 10 years ago, when he founded Nubank, which is now the world's largest digital bank of over 50 million customers. He also shared the importance he places on culture as a differentiating factor in business and how he thinks about the legacy he wants to leave behind. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. David, bienvenido. Gracias. Um, welcome back to Stanford. Welcome back to the GSB. Ten years ago, you would have been sitting out in those seats contemplating your graduation just six weeks away. Today, you founded Nubank, the world's largest digital bank with over 50 million customers and um, valued almost $30 billion. So on behalf of all my classmates sitting here today, I really just have two questions for you. <laughs> What and how? <laughs> we, we, we do have a lot to cover, so, so I want to get started. Uh, I want to start before the GSB. Uh, you grew up in Colombia, then moved to Costa Rica. You're in a family of entrepreneurs, both your father and your uncles. How did that shape you? Well, first of all, I'm so honored uh, about that. I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's, uh, I'm really speechless. It's, uh, it's an honor to be back here at Stanford. Um, as a GSB alum and undergrad, this place is super special for me. I made some of the best friends of my entire life, and it's been incredibly influential. So thank you for having me, and, and you know, excited to be telling a little bit of our story. Um, I, as, as, as you said, I come from a family of, of entrepreneurs. Uh, I, I grew up in Colombia. My dad has 12 siblings. Uh, my mom has five. They were all entrepreneurs. They were small businesses. And it was all about hustling all the time, every time. I had to be, my, my, my dad had a small button company uh, for jeans. And I was working that button company doing quality control of buttons when I f was four years old. And I, was, I grew up in that environment where it was always about problem solving. It was always about leading and about um, not necessarily following rules, but questioning when the rules don't, didn't make any sense and trying to open space to solve those problems. And I remember one day, I, I don't know, had a conversation with my dad about like, what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to study? I told him I'm going to be a manager, thinking that was the, the, the best thing. Uh, or I'm going to start management. And he said, no, 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 no. Like, what do you want to manage? You're going to be a founder. You're going to start a business. You're going to build your own space. And so I think that was, that was the DNA uh, that, that I grew up in. I was very lucky to be here at Stanford undergrad. And the, the, I think kind of that radar that everybody has about trying to find what to start, what business to start was always on. 
to my own disappointment, the first year had passed, and second passed, and third year passed, and I had no idea where to start. And to my own disappointment, I ended up going through more traditional uh, financial services experience, but I loved it. I learned a ton. I worked with really, really amazing, experienced people. And eventually, uh, through a long story, and I'm sure we're going to talk about it, I finally had the shot at, at, at a building, I started building the company I was. It took me almost 15 years to figure out what to do. Yeah, I want to get to that in a second. But <clears throat> first, you mentioned after some time in investing uh, with General Atlantic and, and some banks, you came to Stanford, uh, came back to Stanford, came to the GSB. What were you looking for from the GSB from this place back then? Or let me ask it a different way. What mattered most to you and why back then? <laughs> yeah, so that essay, yeah, that's, that's a tough one to write. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think for me it was, um, so I wanted to start something. To me, going back to business school was, okay, fine, it's done. Like, I really need to start to get ready to, to build something. And, um, and it was also about Latin America, and I think related to that, to the question, it was like impact. I, at some point, I realized that two things were really drivers for me. One was learning. I had to always feel that I was learning something new, and I felt that my level of motivation quickly declined when I find myself that I had mastered or I had learned or I was not being challenged. So, but then beyond that, it was almost about like, what's the, what's the meaning of what I'm doing? What, what, what's ultimately, what I'm doing every single day, what is that driving towards? What is that creating? And um, when I was, uh, initially when I was doing investment banking, it was, I was learning a ton and getting out of the comfort zone, but the, what I'm ultimately driving to was harder for me to answer. Moved to GA when I was closer to the entrepreneurs, that was easier to answer. Uh, but ultimately, I was not building it. I was sitting in, in front of the entrepreneur, and I thought that the entrepreneur, what the entrepreneur was doing is like, I wanted to be that person. I wanted to be the one that was making the hard decisions, not necessarily telling them what to do, but actually doing it myself. And, and ultimately, to what I wanted to do is, um, what I wrote in the essay was just create that impact to build something, and, but, but back in Latin America, where I always felt that there was so much to do and so much to build that I, that I needed to be able to tie back what I was doing to that overall impact in the region. Right. Um, and yeah, so while at the GSB, you were wor still investing, working for Sequoia, focused on Latin America. Um, and after graduation, you stayed in investing, uh, went back to Sao Paulo. But within a year, less than a year, you had found a new <coughs> bank. What happened? Where yeah. was that switch? So I started... Uh, full quarter at Stanford, ready to start taking all the class about entrepreneur, ready to enjoy my two years of partying and, you know, and learning and thinking. And then one afternoon, David George, who's around, tells me, you got to go meet Doug Leone at Sequoia, right here, Mr. Doug. And he's there thinking about investing in, in, uh, in Latin America. I was like, and I, of course, went and, and met Doug at Sequoia. And, uh, and a, lot of, a lot of things were very odd about the first uh, encounter, generally because your first interview in a, any place generally is with the, with the most junior associate, with the youngest person. Here I was talking directly with the head of the firm and, and that was not usual. And then I sit in front of the dog and we had a, just a great conversation for, for, for 60 minutes. A uh, lot of conversations about, about family, a lot of conversations about personal, very, uncharacteristics of a venture capital interview, I later realized that it was all a psychological profiling that, 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 that was <laughs> happening at that point. Uh, 
And, and, um, and Doc told me, come back, meet our people at Sequoia, and let's see what happens. And, and between, between me leaving Sequoia and getting into my car, I already had an email from Michael Moritz saying, come back, I want to meet you. It took five minutes for Doc to talk to Mike and Mac and, and send me back. And so in, in, in two weeks, I went and met everybody, and, and they proposed me to help Sequoia look at, at Latin America and Brazil. And so at that point, I wanted, to, I wanted to start a business, but this was just too good of an opportunity to, to, to say no to. I was going to be able to in, be closer to entrepreneurs as a venture capital investor. I was going to be able to be very close to some of the best entrepreneurs in the world that operated around this area, seeing them being there as they pitched to Sequoia. So the opportunity was too good to pass and decided to put, again, once again, uh, pause to the startup idea and spend um, effectively those two years at uh, working at Sequoia. How did you balance that? For the current students <laughs> here, what was the day like? It was, inc it was incredibly intense. Uh, there the was an advantage that Brazil is five hours ahead. So I had to wake up at four in the morning so that Brazil was, was at nine and, eight and 10. I was in the office at Sequoia offices at four, 4.30 calling entrepreneurs and talking and, and, and sourcing like crazy. And so I was working at Sequoia from 5 to 8 a.m., would come to GSB, would have all the classes done, then go back to Sequoia until like, I don't know, 6, 7 p.m., then go back, to, go back, to, um, back home and try to do uh, some homework. I think the video said that somehow I was perhaps close to RJ Miller's color. No. <laughs> Not even close. You had you had to sacrifice something. There is no way you can. And I quickly you know, sacrifice. This is not. This does not make any sense. I cannot do that. I'm not gonna do 100% of the readings. Impossible. Uh, I'll pick and and I'll take the risk of the professor calling me on a class and not having the answer because I didn't read everything. I'll, I'll embarrass myself. But you have to give something up. You cannot do it all and. And uh, that's, that's what I ended up uh, uh, give, uh, giving up. So, and and uh, there were no Tuesday night uh, uh, parties for me. I, 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 Wednesdays were the day off. And that was, there were some of the most uh, kind of really surreal experiences of getting picked out at GSB, going to the airport, getting to a plane with Doug, flight to Sao Paulo, landing Wednesday 8 a.m., having 10 meetings, signing four term sheets, get back to Sao Paulo and be back on Thursday for GSB. So then, then I, I would pinch myself being in a plane saying what it's what it's happening here. But um, but anyway, it was, it was super intense, but you had to be able to to balance it somehow to, 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 to make everything work. Right. You talk about giving something up. You end up giving up investment, investing, right? And making that switch. What, what was that decision? What, were you, what was going for your mind? So there was uh, there was a really good advice I got from Doug at some point uh, that, that made me thought a lot and, and, and kind of conceptualize something that I was I had already been thinking for a long time. And I'll just give an example to talk about that. I, I remember right after, right before business school, going to a conference in New York, a venture capital conference, uh, Latin America venture capital conferences, and seeing one day eight private equity funds in Latin America pitching their fund. In my end, at the end of the day, it was like every single pitch is exactly the same. There was no differentiation. Everybody was pitching the same strategy. And then there was an advice at some point that I heard from Doug is, and it was very also timely about what was going on in Silicon Valley in 2012, is that you want to position yourself in the side of the scarcity of the market, not in the side of the oversupply. 
And where was, where was a lot of oversupply? There was a lot of oversupply of investors at the point in Latin America trying to do. There was a lot of oversupply of people like me in the US. And so me staying in the US was being positioned in the area where, every, where I was a commodity. I was a complete commodity in the US. My background, what I knew was too many competent people in Latin America, that's not true. There is a scarcity of talent. And then where is even more scarcity we went and met a lot of startups. There were a few startups, and the few startups that they were trying to do were almost like clones of US companies. They were not really solving the real Latin American problems. They were, uh, they, they, they were uh, when we went, there were 3,000 clones of Groupon in that time. <laughs> That's not the biggest problem of Latin America, is, is, is getting, figuring that out. or, or uh, when that's not what people really care about when you don't have banking access, when you, there are no hospitals, when their education is horrible, when there is bad infrastructure. So there are all these gigantic problems and there were no entrepreneurs actually solving them or addressing them. So when you combine all of that, it's like this is where their scarcity lies, is these huge challenges in Latin America. I can position myself strategically to be able to address those and, and ultimately, that meant also stopping investing and, and ultimately going as, a, as an entrepreneur to, to build something that was very ex different at that stage. Yeah. So you, you mentioned you wanted to solve difficult <coughs> problems. You chose banking, which is highly regulated. In particular, Latin America has a lot of entrenched players, in particular in Brazil. Why banking? And what were the VCs telling you about that when you were pitching that idea? Yeah. So, um, so a, couple of, a couple of reflections I think I, I had some time. Um, I, going back to what really were driving me, the, the big question was like, what is impact? How can, I, how can I optimize the amount of impact per unit of time? I'm gonna start a business, it's gonna take decades, right? It's gonna be, it's gonna take as much energy to do something small than something big. And when I asked the question, what is the single most, what is the single hardest thing I can possibly imagine? What is the single most impactful thing I can possibly imagine? Banks. Was that the answer? Because when you look at Latin America, the biggest companies in Brazil are banks. The biggest companies in Mexico are banks. The biggest companies in Argentina are banks. Mm -hmm. There's nothing bigger. It was, it was the hardest thing I could imagine. It was the single most impactful thing I could imagine because these were, uh, it's an oligopoly structure. It's, you have five banks that own, dominate 80, 90% of all these countries. When you have an oligopoly, you have no competition that translates into some of the highest interest rates and fees in the world, really horrible experience, and significant percent of the population not having access to anybody, uh, not, not being able to get into a bank account, nobody will serve them. So if I manage to figure out how to bring more competition to that industry, make it five, 10% better by competing with these five gig giants, then the impact of that was gonna spread around to entire region. It was gonna be really, really impactful. So, uh, so I arrived to that from a, from a very kind of uh, very high end thinking about that impact in question. No idea really how to do it. It seemed impossible. We, I went and talked to, I think I had like 30 meetings, coffees in Sao Paulo with the former CEO of this bank, the former CEO of the bank. The consensus, overwhelming consensus is no, you cannot compete with these banks. It's impossible. These are the banks are the most powerful corporations in Latin America. They are controlled by the wealthiest families in Latin America. They will never let you compete. They will go after your kids. They will go after your family. A uh, lot of people have done it. But then a lot of arguments that, that 
they just didn't make any sense. And, and I would like listen very carefully, trying to, trying to filter out the no's because there was real reality behind the no's and the no's that were just uh, uh, ultimately a symptom of consensus and fear. Mm -hmm. And there were things like, well, Itaú tried to do an online bank in 99 and they failed. That's where you're going to fail. <laughs> and I was like, ah, we're in 2012. <laughs> 60 million people have a smartphone. 99, you have 5% internet penetration. And that was the argument that the experts were telling me, were using to tell me that people would not use. Or internet in Brazil is very slow. And then you had 100 million people already been Brazil top five in the world in Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. So a lot of arguments that the experts were proposing against that idea, but when you think a little bit deeply about them, they would be very weak underneath. And ultimately, my, my, my conclusion at the end of maybe uh, two months of talking to people was, wow, there's so much fear. There's so much fear about competing with that. That's all what it's driving. And obviously, technology was switching the opportunity. If it, if it had been 2010 to compete with those banks, I needed a billion dollars to put branches in every corner and buy IBM mainframes the right time, kind of the why now question, smartphone created, removed all those barriers and allowed us to use technology to, to reach 100% of the population. So it was a confluence of, of technology, uh, getting to the right time, but then also kind of as an outsider, and I saw myself as an outsider, I'm not Brazilian, I never worked for a bank in Brazil, I was not consumed, I did not grow up in that environment where People were fearful of these big companies. I didn't even know a lot of these controlling families that my Brazilian friends knew and feared. Being a, having a, being an outsider looking in was ended up being a, a huge advantage because allowed me to disentangle a lot of those arguments and ultimately realize that there could be an opportunity there. Yeah, but from that idea to traction is a long road, right? <clears throat> when did you know that you were getting traction with the consumers, the ones making the decisions every day? Yeah. So at every stage, uh, you know, we, we, we got the first million from Sequoia. It was a huge bet uh, on the, the region, on, on the relationship I had with Doug. That helped to, with, with Cash, I could put the other million. But there were so many open questions that I couldn't even answer. And there were so many points of perhaps complete failure. So for example, there were two issuers of credit cards. One of them, when we went to them and said, hey, we're starting this FinTech, Neobank said, you're crazy, no way, we're not gonna, we're not gonna work with you. The left, one left. <laughs> and when we went to them, they said, yes. So if they had said no, we're done. Uh, <laughs> there, were there were changes in regulation that came in and at every single step, there were, there were points of failure, but somehow with, the, with a small team, we were, we were creative. I remember we, there was a new law that, that appeared in Brazil, a new regulation that made us effectively forced us to launch three months before, uh, in, in April 2014. We were gonna launch first card in June and the regulation changed and said, if you're not operating April 2013, you will need a banking license, uh, which means it will take you three years to get it, which means you'll be dead. So we grabbed the entire team and said, forget the timeline, survival mode, April, we have to be live. And we have a timeline and it was so crazy that to be able to match the timeline perfectly, we had to get a, an approval from MasterCard the right time, and it was only approved in, in, in Holland. FedEx was gonna take two more days than me flying in an airplane to Holland and giving that 
sheet in the headquarters of Mastercard there. So we would get in a plane and fly to Holland to give one, uh, to give one page to somebody in Mastercard because that would save us two days from FedEx. So that was the level of urgency of trying to figure it out how we survived so we could launch those products at time. So we launched on time. Uh, we had the 12 cards up and running, uh, up and running with 12 employees. We had 12 employees, uh, went to the corner shop, uh, paid some coffee. Obviously, as always, didn't work, the first product. <laughs> Everybody's appointed, everybody was sad, went home, what's happening? Eventually, we iterated, worked out. And then with a serious, we raised a serious A, uh, and then that was gonna be the coming out kind of announcement. We're gonna have to do a lot of PR, and we're gonna opening up the company for external employees, uh, external consumers. And we had, a, the day we announced the Series A and we opened the website, we had an internal bet about how many uh, customers are going to sign up. And some, somebody said 1,500, 1,000, somebody else said 10,000. The average of the employees was 1,000. We announced, we worked really hard to get ourselves our name there in the big magazine we got 200. <laughs> Completely disappointed. Everybody went home, sad. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Like, people don't want that everything is wrong. And then, a couple, three months, three months happened. We were getting 150 people there. The, day, the year passed. And then there was one, one day, unexpected, one very niche publication. Uh, it was not the main newspaper, one niche publication that went after the. the design community and engineer community talked about the card. And suddenly the following day we got 3,000 people. And the following day we got 6,000. And the following day 10,000. And suddenly growth just started uh, going out of control to the point where we were completely unprepared and we created this, this concept of waiting list, which then created even more scarcity, which meant more people wanted the card, which created more. So that's when I, that's when I started to think that day when that publication came in and all these people started, I was like, whoa, okay, there is, there is, there is something here. Yeah. Well, so it's incredible to hear this journey and there's a lot of budding entrepreneurs in the audience. Actually, let's check who here is working on a business or thinks they're going to work on a business uh, after graduation. So get us even more <laughs> than I thought. Um, <laughs> um, what's one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you were sitting out there? Ah, so a lot, lot, lot of different things. Um, I, I think we did, when we looked at that industry and when all these experts told us no, our approach was forget experience. We don't want experienced people. We want complete outsiders. We want to reinvent everything from first principles. Everything from the way the product works, collections, we did not want to hire somebody from the collections agency of the big banks. We reinvented collections from scratch. We did not want the core banking systems of the industry. We built a core banking system from scratch. So it was all about reinventing the entire industry from, from, from scratch, and that meant hiring people that are completely outsiders. That worked well, but that did not scale, and that, that became a significant bottleneck as we started scaling. And that also ultimately meant reinventing the wheel in a number of different things that frankly we just didn't need to reinvent. There was a lot of, um, there was a lot of good people in banks that could bring, uh, that could, good people in collections that could bring they want and saved us a year of reinventing collection from scratch. So that complete dismissal of experience was too extreme. 
Ultimately, I think what we learned was you needed to figure out how to, how to find the right balance between the outsiders and the insiders, how to find the insiders that were still able to, to think as a beginner. We always say that we like to hire people that have more questions than answers, and we continue to look for those people that have more questions than answers. The, the person that comes in and has all answers, that has 30 years of experience, we don't want that person even now. But even the insiders that can ask a lot of questions, they're very, very valuable because they know the enemy within. They saw all the vulnerabilities. They, they saw all the things that could be better, but they can still have the, 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 the kind of the beginner's mind of, of reinventing a lot of, a lot of products from scratch. And so what we've increasingly done, and as we scale the organization, we had, we, we've been actively more looking for those insiders that can help us reinvent. And especially as you start, really tackling scale problems. How do you build engineering systems of scale? How do you build customer service of scale, the data science, machine learning systems of scale? Then you need to rely much more on experience. Doesn't make a lot of sense to be trying to reinvent. So it's all a balance, but I would say having been able to find the right balance earlier would have saved us a lot of pain. Right. Uh, so you mentioned people, and I want to talk about something related to that, which I know you talk a lot about, which is culture. Um, you talk about having kind of the founding team, then expanding. How do you maintain the new bank culture uh, that the company is so famous for? One, one of the, so I mentioned earlier how I impressed I was, I was with Sequoia and how different, a lot of the things at Sequoia were so different. And, and one of the things that I also I re reflected while I was in doing the internship is I had never felt myself so motivated in my entire life with any work. And, in previous jobs, I felt that I was always at maybe 80% of my capacity, 90% my capacity at the beginning of, of being pushed mm -hmm. and learning. At Sequoia, in the first few months, I was 100. It was clear to me there was not there was nothing more, and I, and I was, and so it made me think like what what is what is driving this? Like what are they? What, what's different about this place that is driving somebody like me to to want to go at that at this pace and working for Dog that's driving me to go at this at this speed. And, and exactly, it was the, it was the uh, and it was not, and, and it wasn't that. That's that's amazing. It's not the, it's not the whip. It's it is. It was this first. It was this sense of ownership. It was I was an intern from business school, and I had the head of the firm, an investment committee, asking me what I thought about a deal. Nobody in my previous experience had asked me what I thought. I was this an analyst. In the first investment committee at Sequoia, as an intern, I sat next to Doug, and he asked me what I thought. And I didn't know, I didn't have an opinion ready. And that meant that for the next one, I better be prepared. I better knew, like, I had to give a good answer. And so that level of autonomy with ownership was a, what really string conversation, that they, how flat the organization was. It was not all these layers where the CEO was over there. It was like everybody had the same room. Remember Mike Moritz didn't even have an office. He was he's, he got a, a chair in the hall, and, and you're like talking to him with it. So that to me was like that was culture, and that was and culture was driving that motivation. And the other thing I heard a lot about Sequoia that, that I was able to learn when I was sitting in front of this, this entrepreneur was hearing a lot saying that the culture of a company was built in the first six months by the first 10 to 15 people. So uh, when I started Nubank, the first thing I did was the pitch deck for the seed. But the second thing I did was the culture deck. 
And this culture deck was like the constitution. What are, what are the values of this company we're about to begin to do? And had a lot of elements that I, that I had learned as a co-ed, this level of ownership, this autonomy, this flat organization, this, this, this view that I personally thought drove a lot of motivation. And since the first 10, 15 employees were so important, then they were very, as, as we hired them with my co-founder, we were very actively looking for people that had brought that DNA, and we co-designed this culture deck with everybody of them. From the designer to the first engineer, they all participated in the construction of the deck. And this was very powerful because, in a way, sometimes I think about it as the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States is over 200 years, it's very short, it, it represents what the US as a country stands for. And here we are, and it's still, people still go drawn to that. And for us, that deck was the Constitution of Newbank. And today, those values are as latent, as important for us as they were when we were 10 employees. So that has scaled a lot. That gave us a lot of clarity around the people we wanted to hire, about the way we did performance management, the way we let go people, that drove all decisions, that drove product decisions, that drove the type of language we should use in an email with the consumer. Or focus number one is this obsession about consumers that meant hours of debate about the words that we could not use with a consumer because they were too complex, about the level of simplicity, this ownership of everybody flat that meant customers' calls would go initially to my co-founder Christina's phone and my phone. I would get customers. The first call was not a customer service person. I would get them in my phone. So, um, so I think ultimately that kind of became the, a bit of the realization why culture was, what, it is the driving force. There's nothing more important because culture allows you to hire people. People build products. Products bring you customers. And so ultimately consumers don't come to you because of your products. Consumers come to you because of the culture. They are consumers of culture. They're not consumers of products. And, and really authentic cult, uh, companies are companies that are able to really ultimately represent and show what they stand for. And obviously, more importantly, they have integrity. They, they do what they say they do. There's, there's perfect alignment. And this is perhaps, as you scale, the part that we've been much more mindful about. Uh, the, the expanding culture has meant we have a number of different routines. For example, this culture deck that I mentioned I still present that culture every month to everybody that starts at Nubank. Since the beginning uh, till now, it's me. I don't delegate that to anybody. Every month I present this culture deck with the values to every single person, from the customer service, the receptionist, to the engineer. They all go through this onboarding session with me where I present them the deck. And I think that shows the, the level set, the lack of hierarchy, the, the transparency, uh, that shows how important culture is, the values. Um, but then every single time about thinking about the decisions you make, you have to bring back those values in. So I'll just, I'll, I'll give one last example on, uh, just, just to, to, to exemplify this. About a year ago, one, one team came back and said, wow, something is happening. We're making more money per customer. Suddenly the cohorts, the unit economics start increasing. You see a blip of revenue per customer. We went and looked and tried to figure out what had happened. And it turns out that through a bug in a system, some, an engineer had removed an email that reminded the customer to pay on time. And so obviously, customers were being late more, and we were charging more late fees. It was very simple for everybody to know what to do. 
because we had a framework of values that provided context around that decision. The right thing to do was not only go back and put that email, but also go back to customers that have overpaid and tell them, sorry, we made a mistake. We removed this email that you should have received. We're not going to charge you this, this fee, and here's your money back. And, and that, to me, was a really powerful example because first, 99% of companies would have done the exact opposite. They actually would have said, ah, oh, let's see what our email will remove, right? <laughs> let's, this is great. Let's take this email out. Let's take this email out to make more money. Um, even companies that say they're consumer obsessed would probably have had a lot of really tough conversation of somebody saying, ah, no, it's, the customer should have known. It was his responsibility. Like, you should. For us, it was, there was clarity. We want consumer obsession. Put that money back. There was, uh, put, put that email back. And, and then they, the answer ultimately is like, it's a teaching moment for everybody. It's like, why does that make sense and why is it consistent with the business? Because when you're a consumer and, and your bank is telling you this, you say, I will never go anywhere else for the next decade. You got me forever. Nobody else will do that for me. So, and, and that exemplifies very well, I think, what we think, which is ultimately this, this culture is aligned with business objectives. We get to retain that customer for a decade now because we reimbursed a dollar in a late fee. So ultimately, that is a very powerful example internally uh, and, 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 and shows the integrity of the culture, which is actions speak louder than words. And, and, and this example ultimately exemplified that very well. Yeah. I want to switch gears a second and talk about <coughs> Latin America, a region that's close to both of our hearts. Um, as you mentioned, Sequoia pulled the plug in Latin America in 2012 because of a lack of tech and entrepreneurial talent. And last year, they came back into Latin America. 2017, Nubank opened an office in Berlin to attract tech talent, right? And now we have a classmate of mine out in this audience somewhere um, who's gringo as gringo gets uh, and is moving to Sao Paulo next year to join your team. There's a transformation happening, but how far do we still have to go? Uh, it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's early, so it's early days. There is a lot of work ahead. I think the future of every industry in every country is technology companies. Like there is no way back. And I think it was obvious in retail initially with Amazon and then companies like Netflix and media and companies like Uber and transportation. Every single vertical of the economy will be owned 10, 20, 30 years from now by new digitally native companies. That means that every single industry you see today in any country in Latin America is going to be reinvented. And sometimes we'll be the incumbent that will be able to reinvent. That will probably be the exception on the rules, but there's a huge opportunity to reinvent all economies in all industries. Now, who does that reinvention? Entrepreneurs and very much engineers at the end. We're starting to finally get entrepreneurs in Latin America. Hopefully all of you, even the gringos, go to Latin America and, and, and start businesses. Because 12 years ago, that was not happening. People are going to the consulting firms. People are going to the big companies. And, and, and the few entrepreneurs were just, again, looking at the clones, looking at this, this, this stuff. But there was a lot of opportunity. Reinvent banking, reinvent healthcare, reinvent telecom, reinvent transportation. Now, engineers, it's, that's a big, big, big problem, very unresolved uh, is, is one of the reasons. You, you, if all the industries are going to be reinvented in Latin America, there are two options by, by tech companies. There are two options. Or they get reinvented by Latin American technology companies, or 
will be American and Chinese companies that will be global and will be in Latin. If it's Latin American companies, you need engineers, and they're not engineers in Latin America. They're not. I remember with Doug in University of Sao Paulo, 42 computer science engineers graduating in 2013. Uh, Brazil graduates, I think, something like 30,000. I was looking at the numbers in Colombia a couple of weeks ago. There are more, there are 10x more graduates today. There are 10x more people studying law in Colombia than computer science. Doesn't make any sense. And what's, what's strange is you would think, initially you would say the lack of this bottleneck, you would think it's a supply issue. Nobody's teaching these people how to be computer engineering. It's actually a demand issue. These students are graduating from, from high school today and they're still choosing to do a business administration or law when there is about half a million gap of computer scientists in Latin, which is more or less the, 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 the bottleneck. So, Unclear how to solve that. There is a, it's a big opportunity, or it's a big challenge. If we don't solve it, there'll be Chinese tech and US companies owning all industries in Latam, because somebody's going to do it. If we solve it, somehow we, we grab all these people. There's just a huge opportunity to not only reinvent all the economies in all of these countries, but also to contribute to solve one of the biggest problems that we have, which is opportunity and income inequality. Mm -hmm. Because if it's just a few companies from abroad, then you have this extreme concentration of, of market cap in some of these companies, and you don't have the Latin Americans contributing to that. So you will end up with much, much higher income inequality. If you solve it, then you have all Latin Americans building their own programming and design and product, creating the next companies that are going to be reinventing all these regions. So it's, it's almost like an existential threat for all countries right now, globally, same thing happens in Africa, same thing happens in Asia. The problem is that I would say LATAM and perhaps Africa were just farther away. And, in, and even though I think here at Stanford for us, it's almost like this clear now, what's happening the next 10, 20 years. You go to any, you talk to the student that's graduating in high school in Guadalajara or, or in Salvador in Bahia or in Cali, they don't, they don't see it. They, haven't, they don't know what's coming. They haven't seen it yet. Speaking of inequality, uh, your wife, Marielle, is here today as well. And together last year, as Dean Levin mentioned, you were only the second Latin American family to sign the giving pledge. Uh, take us into the conversation you were having together. What motivated that decision? So <clears throat> I think we always, we did Nubank, as I said, because we wanted to build, we wanted to problem solve, we wanted to create impact. And it was the sheer kind of joy of creation and, 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 and creating impact. And so money was never a motivation. It was never really something that we thought about. It was not an issue. Both Mariela and I come from families, uh, middle-class families that uh, gave us a lot of opportunity and we feel very blessed about the opportunities that we had. But money per se was, not, was never really a driving factor. And then suddenly this company start is being worth a billion dollars and five and 10 and 30 billion. And, and the, the, the speed is, is huge. And then about 12 months ago, we, 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 we raised money at 25 billion valuation. And, and you start making the numbers like, wow, this is a, this is a lot of money. <laughs> and, 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 and we don't need it. We do not, we don't need this money. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't need it. We, we don't live a luxury life. We don't, 
we don't we don't we don't need it and and it just feels like a big responsibility suddenly because we we come from family going back to impact that's what drives us and um and then it becomes a big responsibility like how do you use this money to provide the biggest impact possible in the region you go back to the same driving factor the impact question and I had read a book uh, that I recommend everybody to read. It's one of my more impact, impactful books called A Billionaire Who Wasn't, uh, Chuck Finney, the founder of Atlantic Philanthropies, where it's a fascinating book where he goes for 20 years doing philanthropy in the world. He decides that he wants to spend it all while he lives, all the money. And he says that he wants his last check to bounce. And I just thought that was the most powerful analogy. And when we started thinking about it, we said, we want to be that person because if you start thinking about it first what a great opportunity all society is going to change and we're being benefiting significantly from the change of technology but second this is just going to drive significant income inequality and so um, philanthropy and social impact giving back plays a role but why delay it why delay this to the end when you're 80 years old, when you're tired, when you don't have the energy, when you don't necessarily bring like the clarity of mind to solve problems? Even worse, why dying and leaving all that money to a foundation of people that will do it or to your kids where a lot of the times that is just going to make more damage to them than good? Uh, so we decided we do not want to leave it to the kids. They will be loved. They will get a lot of opportunities, but <laughs> leaving... Leaving a lot of the stuff, it's not, it, that's, that, that we don't want to do that. So number one, not to the kids. Um, they're young and they're not looking at this, but maybe one day they'll be, <laughs> they'll be, they'll be very resentful. I hope not. I hope they'll, they'll get to understand why we're doing this. So number one. Number two, we're all dying at some point. We all have, there'll be one day where we won't exist anymore. And... Um, I think uh, it was Andrew Carnegie who said, who dies rich, dies disgraced, because there is so much pain and so much problems to be solved in the world today. It's like, why would you delay it? Why would you not use all that money now to solve those issues? Why would wait decades if you can do and make a difference using your energy, your mind, and your, and your, and, and your money to do that? Why die and, and risk not you participating of the, of the solving of those problems? So, all of that, there was a big kind of brainstorm all of that led us to this decision that we want to give it all away. We want our last check to bounce. And we're going to be thoughtful about it. We're going to set it the right way. We're going to build a family foundation. We're going to go back and use a lot of the tools that Stanford and business gives us of think back on first principles, think about all these problems, what is driving this inequality, where is the highest impact per dollar expense in the region, and how, do we, how can we over the next four, five, maybe six decades, use this, this money and this energy to create as much impact as possible. And, um, and so that's where in the very, very, very early days of, of that journey, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think philanthropy needs to be disrupted. There is a mm -hmm. lot of lessons on, we're, we see ourselves with Danielle here, who's also not our GSB, who's helping us that. We find ourselves in meetings using concept of computer science in philanthropy, used, talking about platformization, talking about open source, talking about crypto. Uh, and there is a lot that can be used uh, to start addressing some of these big problems and ultimately not let this technology become one more driver of inequality, 
but actually have it be an enabler of, of, of more equality of opportunity for everybody. Great. Let's actually end on that note for now. <laughs>
and our deck said flat organization. And um, that was a really bad idea. <laughs> it turns out that if you're completely flat and you and everybody has an idea, it's it's complete chaos, and you become really slow. And and everybody and you end up with these systems of consensus where everybody needs to be agree. Turns out consensus is actually a driver towards lower risk type of decisions, which means you end up with a lower risk type of organization. And, uh, and, and you also end up with a very, you, you slow down the, uh, your product. So, so one, after seeing all this happening and you always go back and kind of question yourself about why does this make any sense? And kind of the realization was a bit is like, hierarchy is a good thing. There's, there's fundamentally nothing wrong with hierarchy. Hierarchy has existed in human organizations for over 5,000 years, almost every organization has a hierarchy because hierarchy is a very useful way to organize a larger group of people. What's not good is hierarchies that are created sometimes for other purposes rather than doing the right thing for the organization or doing the right thing for the product. And what, 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 what are some of those things? We I remember going in, in Sao Paulo in, in our building when we were renting a new building and I got on a question from um, the architect of our new building saying if we needed a special elevator for the directors and if we needed to reserve the last floor of the building for the directors. And I had no idea what that meant <laughs> until I was invited for lunch at a big bank and I saw myself going through a special elevator to the top floor that was for directors, and I had waiters with white gloves serving me <laughs> lunch in, uh, in, in, a, in a silver platter where everybody in the organization else was not eating food. And so that is the wrong reason to build a hierarchy is symbols of power and ego. And a lot of organizations, a lot of hierarchies ends up being co-opted by the ego of the founder, by the ego of the directors of, of symboling power is the big corner office of, of the CEO when you have a little cubicle or having a special parking lot for the CEO, why, if, I would love to go, and I've never done it, I will someday, go to a CEO of one of these big organizations, like, explain me why having that restaurant only for you and that officer, how can you tie that directly to better business performance? There isn't. There is no way to justify those divisions through better business performance. It's ego. So I think that's when your organization hierarchy ends up being a bit corrupted because it's just more ego and power and titles that are driving a lot of layers rather than doing the right thing for your organization. So we have a hierarchy. It's as flat as it becomes. We try to organize ourselves in autonomous units, but with a clear leader that has real accountability. We don't believe anymore on group decision-making. We want everybody's input. We want to hear everybody. But ultimately, we've got to make a decision, and there's got to be an accountable person to make that decision so we can move. Uh, we don't believe in consensus necessarily. If consensus arrives, excellent. It doesn't. We have to make a decision. And, uh, and then you have a, a hierarchy with as many layers with clear lines of accountability in the organization, and that allows you to, to drive fast. But ultimately, it's all about business performance and driving to results, and it's as egoless entitled less as possible so you can remove that from the day to day. Great. We're almost out of time. I know there are more questions, but we're unfortunately almost out of time. Uh, but before we close, uh, we want to do a traditional view from the top lightning round. You ready? Ready. Colombia did not qualify for the FIFA World Cup. 
who are you supporting? Brazil. That, that's, the, that's the wrong answer. Um, let me try again. I got, I got, um, I got four Brazilian yeah. kids now, so I got I, all Brazil. Messi or Ronaldo? Ronaldo. <laughs> okay, we should move on. Um, favorite class at the DSV? Dutch Philly. Dutch Philly. Biggest learning from that class? It's, it's a simple insight, but really, really, really powerful, which is success is driven by people, is by, by being able to, if you are better at relating with other people, that's a huge advantage because uh, everything you do is with people. Your family is managing people, your personal relations is people, your companies are people, your teams are people. And, uh, and ultimately that and be able to create strong bonds with people through vulnerability and through knowing yourself well, it's a very, very, very powerful superpower. Yeah. Um, worst piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> Bonus points if it's from Doug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, don't launch a digital bank in Brazil because <laughs> Unibanco failed in 1999. Um, better parties, Stanford undergrad or Stanford GSB? Ah, I think GSB. Yeah. GSB. Um, we can all relate to that. Last, last one, favorite memory of the GSB? Um, favorite uh, at the GSB, I think it was, uh, it's, there's, there's, just, there's just so many. I think it was just being in our house, past that house, uh, appropriately named Animal Kingdom, which of uh, <laughs> sort of all these animals right here, Animal Kingdom, <laughs> uh, 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 with illusion of Animal House, and just spending time with friends, having a beer in the afternoon, grilling a burger, and having just a great blast with great people. Ladies and gentlemen, Please help me thank David Velez. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by myself, Christian Strohmeyer, of the MBA class of 2022. Lily Sloan composed our theme music. Michael Riley and Lenny Luna produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, tsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSP.